Welcome one and all to Vision on Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. Back in August this year, the lights came down on yet another of the broadcasting giants from the younger lives of many of us, when Michael Parkinson, the person who many considered to be one of the greatest television interviewers ever, passed on at the grand old age of 88. A cornerstone of British television throughout the 1970s and beyond, Parkey was a no-nonsense Yorkshireman whose journalistic career took him from the Manchester Guardian via cinema on Granada Television all the way to the BBC where he was finally given his eponymous chat show Parkinson which ran from 1971 to 1982 and again from 1998 to 2007. In his own distinctive style, he interviewed many of the most famous people in the world, including many of the brightest stars from the golden era of Hollywood that he would have grown up watching in the cinemas of Barnsley, in shows that have since become some of the most memorable and valued video documents of their time. And whilst his presenting skills were utilised on radio in Desert Island Discs and in many television shows such as Give Us a Clue, meaning he has over 450 television presenting credits to his name, including a memorable acting turn in the Vision on Sound favourite Ghost Watch, He was also one of the famous five who helped set up Good Morning Britain in 1983. Anyway, Warren Cummings is a huge fan of dear old Parky, and so we got together a few weeks ago and had a good old reminisce about our own memories of watching Michael Parkinson's television interviewing career, and we also talk a little about the legacy he left and the current state of the art of the television interview. So why don't you all settle down as I fire up those Fab Radio International time engines and head back to look at the life of a television icon. Hello, Martin. It's lovely to hear those dulcet tones. Uh, is it? Good Lord. We have letters, you know, the, the, the dulcet tones. That... No, I don't get letters at all. The listeners never write to me and say, my God, your voice is, your voice, your voice is so wonderful. But anyway, since we last spoke, which was probably months ago, I mean, you... I can't remember your... what we talked about no, last. All sorts of nonsense. I'm sure people will write in and tell us. Um, but we've had a month of, uh, at least a month of television and yes. television related things, television related news. And of course, uh, halfway through August, we lost, we lost Parky. Parky. Dear old Parky. Um, now, Parky, Parky's um, been a staple, really, for mm. people of our generation, of the, mm. the name that would always appear at the end of the Saturday night... And that's your lineup for this evening on mm. BBC One. And there it will be, Parkinson. <laughs> Thank you, Ronnie. Yeah, I tell you, the, the thing that gets me about Parkinson, Parkinson really was the cornerstone of the chat show in the 70s. I know we yeah. had Pebble Mill at one and, you know, people went on and talked to other people. And you had Pebble Mill After Dark as well, yeah. wasn't there? And we had mm. Russell Harty, you know. And so on like that. But Parky really was, he was the go-to, wasn't he? He was the person that 
when he retired or first retired, they were always trying to emulate him. I and mean, when obviously Wogan came along, you had even didn't yeah. Bob Monkhouse did a chat show, didn't he? Yeah, Bob Monkhouse. Yeah, he did it on ITV, didn't he? Yeah. But I think Wogan did it to a death. I yeah. think Wogan for a little while because he just. Oh, well, it was the one bastard. show three nights a week, wasn't it? It was. It was a oh, prototype Lord, yes. one show. In yes, that you've yeah. got a main presenter just chatting to people about their latest film or book. But Parky, I mean Parky, obviously there was a lot of plugging books and films. But Parkinson, I think, in the day he was kind of the gold standard for that kind of programming. I know in the light of you know the modern world, sometimes his style looks a little bit. Uh, well, people say misogynist, sexist, whatever. But at the time, he was the go-to guy. And when you think about, you know, a Barnsley lad, you know... Yeah, done good. <laughs> Definitely done good. Getting to talk to the Hollywood greats. I mean, you know, at the end of the era, you know, when they were all getting very old, you know, Cagney and people like that. Oh, God, you know, yes. And, Stewart's um, as well. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, was it not Ingrid Bergman. Did it Ingrid Bergman do it? But, um, you know, I think Bacall, she, uh, Lauren Bacall, sir. Lauren Bacall, yeah. You know, so the that. likes of, you know, I, I sort of had visions of him sitting in that flea pit in Barnsley, you know, when he was a kid. <laughs> and, and just, you know, the fact that he got in the end to meet the people who were on that screen. I yeah. just think that in itself is a magical thing. The other thing that gets me about Parky is he was at school with Jeff Boycott and Dickie Bird. Oh, Lord. It's Hence his love of, of cricket. Dickie Bird um, was the oldest and, and Jeff Boycott was the youngest, but the three of them, but they kept in touch and they were still friends right up to the end, if you see what yeah. I mean. But, but they were, it's kind of like this, This it's like, how Yorkshire can you possibly be? <laughs> would you would you call our, um, um, would you call Parky the archetypal Yorkshireman then? Uh, it's difficult to say, isn't it? I think there was a lot of, uh, you know, back in uh, back in back in that day, back in those times, you know, it was it was difficult. <laughs> it was you you didn't want to work down the pit, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you've watched any, um, you know, you watch something like Kes, for example. I mean, I know it's Kes is. You you get the impression that the schools were were like a like a treadmill almost, but like a, a mincing mm. machine. I mean, you know, they get the mincing machine in um, the wall, you know, of, of yeah. the, you know, the children. And and kind of, they were just feeding people. They give them enough so they could read and write, maybe, and then they could go down and work in, in the mines. Again, this is all before... Oh, it's a very tourism. controlled environment, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. To keep a, to keep a ha happy balance of society. Yeah. Very few people got to rise above the mean, if you like. It's, and, yeah. and again, that's... That, that's an, an aspect of that kind of culture back then. And obviously Parkinson sort of got away from that. Well, he did get away from that by becoming a yeah. writer, becoming a journalist and various reasons to work for Granada up here, of course, and becoming, you know, a film, a film reviewer, a film correspondent. And then, you know, someone says, do an interview and he does an interview and, and, and that's a stepping stone. And suddenly he's in the right place at the right time. And someone has this idea that maybe we should get somebody to talk to these people. And there you are. And a massively yeah. long career. I remember, I'm old enough to remember, weirdly, Parkinson being twice a week. I remember there were weekday Parkinson's. Was it Wednesday and, Wednesday and Saturday nights? I think so. And I used to yeah. actually stay up with my black and white portable to watch Parkinson. So, you know, wow. I know a lot of people think, oh, you know, Parky, like say, bit of a dinosaur. But actually, he was still the go-to show, if you see what I mean, for that kind of... If you had any interest in film or television, you saw these people out of context on the Parkinson show. 
he's a slice of history. He introduced a slice of history with the people he brought back into the fore, really. Mm. I mean, forgotten names were, were there on Parkinson's show. Mm. And they brought a richness with them. And Parkinson mm. was, as you said, well, as we were talking about earlier, mm. had this wonderful way of just. I'll throw that question in. Mm. Uh, you have the. You start off with the icebreaker. Mm. I was watching one with Richard O'Toole mm. the other evening, and Peter, Richard O'Toole. Peter. 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 Richard Burton O'Toole. Peter O'Toole. Names have been changed to protect the guilty. <laughs> Guilty as sin. And um, you can see he's very uncomfortable talking about himself. He mm. he doesn't really... You're not sure if he really wants to be there. Mm. And he's nervously putting... And get this, he's nervously putting his cigarette on the end of his cigarette mm. holder mm. <laughs> to smoke it. And um, Parky turns to him and goes, um, so um, you're schooling. Oh, God, you're terrible schooling, he goes. And Parky goes, well, my schooling just consisted of me making it to the age of 15, and the only interest I had was in cricket and smoking. Mm. And, he, and Peter O'Toole goes, well, yes, I... I um, but you went to a private school, didn't you, Parker? You went to an old boy's grammar school. He says, that's right. He said, I went to a mixed school. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he just... And he says... Uh, and, and Peter O'Toole goes, so just fill in the... So at the age of 15, I was just filling in the cracks in the wall. <laughs> or... And there was this pause that he looked and he goes to Parky, I don't think that was quite the term I wanted to use. But at that point, <laughs> he's, he's thrown in the icebreaker now. And we're in full flow now. I mean, mm. you, you ask your leading questions now mm. just to keep it in um, some kind of perspective and, and flow it naturally. Mm. And he was a master at doing that, mm. trying to avoid people going off the subject, but pe still keeping them interested. Mm. But on the other the other side of it, you had the Meg Ryan interview, didn't you? Mm. Well, that's the one that always gets quoted, isn't it? Sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, they just didn't they didn't click, you know? No, oh, and plus she just got off an aircraft as well, mm. which didn't help. No, but there's um there's an interesting thing about this though, because uh, it since came out. One of the articles I've read since he he passed is is that uh, he suffered as many in this field do from massive. Levels of imposter syndrome. You know, why, oh, why yes, am I yeah. here? Why am I? Yeah. And that, I think, is a, an interesting aspect of it because I never got that. I never thought, oh, you know, you no. know what I, that sort of sense of I'm not worthy to be talking to these icons. It, it just never came across in, in the actual, in the programmes. I was always surprised, yeah. I was always gobsmacked at because he had such a way with being able to weave that weave his questions into a comfortable mm. story as if they'd known each other for years, mm. as if they're standing at a party and mm. drink in hand, having a chat. Mm. I think it's interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, I have an audio tape somewhere of Peter Sellers on Parkinson, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like these things were instantly... Well, nowadays we'd call them extras, you know, DVD extras or yeah. whatever. You know, they were instantly quotable, instantly packageable, you could basically have, have t tucked any 20-minute Parkinson interview into your pocket, taken it away, and sort of used it anywhere, if you see what I'm yeah. saying there. I'm quite surprised that they haven't reduced him into podcasts. Mm. Well, um, yes. Well, maybe he did go into, uh, later on, he did do a couple of years on Desert Island Disc, didn't he? So, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it is an interesting that I, I think, though, I mean, when you think of the classic, I mean, yes, I'm sure across the 10, whatever, what years he was always on the BBC and later career as well. Because, I mean, he was involved in TVAM, wasn't he? 
He was one yes. of the big five. But one the, the <laughs> let's not dwell. But the, but the, <laughs> On the broken I mean, egg when, syndrome. I mean, when you think about those classic interviews, I mean, there must have been lots that were just ordinary or forgettable. But then I genuinely remember. I remember clearly, even now, well, it must have been about 14, 15, listening to Spike Milligan talking oh. on, on the Parkinson show. Or Kenneth yeah. Williams. Ken- or, Kenneth, um, Kenneth was or, always or a staple. Or Billy Connolly as well. Things. You know, those yeah. iconic comic performers and being just brilliant and being allowed to be brilliant and, and being, you know, let run free within a, within the I, format of, of the Parkinson show. I remember him having Orson Welles on. Mm-hmm. And it was quite interesting um, because he just dominated. He's a big beast of a man anyway, mm. but he just dominated the screen. And he toyed with Parky a bit because mm. he started to answer Parky's questions. Mm. And then he, he is such a master at manipulating a conversation mm. or an interview. And he does that. And Parky lets him, and you can see him doing it because at that particular juncture in his life, he wanted to direct theatre. Mm. And he ultimately wanted to do theatre. And he was so, you could hear the passion coming out of Orson Welles. Mm. And when Orson Welles is extruding passion to an mm. audience, you let him go full flow. Mm. Well, it's Orson Welles. I it's Orson Welles. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> at that stage, I mean, this is still at least 30 years after Citizen K. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, and possibly he's not really had a great success. In the intervening years, and is very much the Hollywood outsider by this stage. Well, but yeah, he's he still was. an iconic, massive sherry drinking figure, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, the sherry efforts, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he is. I always, as a child, I always imagined him to be the runaway train that nobody mm. could stop because mm. he was permanently puffing on a cigar behind this thick grey haze. But, but that rich, booming voice. And that chuckle, he had that sort of earthy chuckle. Well, he didn't take himself too seriously, did he? He didn't, no. And he He could have done, to be fair. Yeah. but I think that would have destroyed him even more, though. But on programmes like Parky, he was happy to... Look behind the curtain, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And he was happy to laugh at himself so much Mm. there. Because it is an absurdity. Do you think Wilson Wells ever struggled with imposter syndrome? (laughs) Do you know, I think he probably did. Or did he just think he was a genius no i don't think he thought he was a genius mm. i think he i think very much that he always woke up thinking mm. he could do better and i think he doubted himself a lot regardless of what people say mm. and i think if if you do have somebody as rich and uh, as, as wonderful as Orson, mm. that people continuously tell you you're wonderful mm. you, you go, start to believe it or you start to doubt it. Yeah. You start. I think you can. Being a nice person, you can start to doubt it, thinking, "Oh, mm. they're they're just sycophants. They're mm. just trying to tell me these things mm. because um, I'll have another sherry." Um, mm. uh, <laughs> I, I just think that it takes a lot of guts to go on a show and spill your life story mm. to a certain extent. Mm. And he he was very measured at doing that. People like Ustinov as well, weren't they? Mm. Oh, yes, Ustinov was another But they were performer. He was a performer. Mm. I mean, people like Ustinov would go on there to perform because they knew they would be asked to do their impressions, Mm. perhaps a little song, Mm. and and they will give you... I I mean, people like Ustinov are are raconteurs. That's a wonderful word, and I think Mm. that's... It's a word that's been lost now. Mm. And I think... Same with people like John Pert, where he could go up and tell a wonderful yarn, couldn't Mm. he? But then... And the next week, you could have Jimmy Stewart. And Jimmy mm. Stewart's very quiet. Mm. 
very humble person, quite shy actually. But mm. he, he, I can remember him coming on and talking about his war service, mm. and I knew nothing about his war service until mm. I watched something like that on Parky. So mm. it wasn't just all about, oh, you're in this wonderful film, or tell mm. us about your film history. It's mm. sometimes if he was allowed to. Mm. he would gently peel those layers back mm. and you would see a, an everyday person behind mm. there. Um, and in the case of Jimmy Stewart, a person who was, who was scared um, of being shot down and being mm. killed and never seeing his, you know, never mm. seeing his relatives again and seeing his, his friends dying around him as their aircrafts crashed mm. to the ground. Uh, something as meaty and highly emotive mm. was wonderfully captured by just perhaps the right opening question. Parky could do that. Do you think, though, that the nature of the Parkinson show is that we actually did see the real person behind the movie star or the or the TV star? Or do you think that's just to be very naive and, and, and simplistic? You know, am I just thinking I know them better because of a show like that? You see, I'm, I'm comparing, really, with a lot of the modern programs now which which sometimes come across as puff pieces they sometimes yeah. feel very you know you've been given the what questions you're allowed to ask and you've only got to talk about the film you don't really feel anymore in a lot of these kinds of shows that you're getting any closer to the actual person some do but not all i think he had a wonderful way of or the show had a wonderful way of categorizing people because mm. Initially, you, you'd have a one-to-one -one hmm. show, but then you could have anything up to three guests on the show. Hmm. And you usually found that the three guests, one of them was either plugging a book or a film. Hmm. One of them was in a play in the West End. Hmm. And another one was just a well-known face. Hmm. But they put the three together because uh, I mean, there's, there's some really absurd, absurd, because you had Kenneth Williams, you had Maggie Smith, and John Betjeman mm. on, and that is across all spectrums there. Yeah, and that was such a, a rich and wonderful mixture. And it, it had John Betjeman reading his poetry. Mm. It had Maggie Smith talking about Shakespeare, mm. and it had Kenneth Williams stepping out of that persona that he puts out, mm. telling people how much he really wanted to do serious Shakespeare mm. and be taken seriously, mm. and. The mixture of those three were quite absurd to look at them on stage mm. and go, none of them mix well. You couldn't see them at a party. Mm. You couldn't see them all working together under the mm. same umbrella. Mm. But yet they were quite happy to come together and pitch in because then it starts into almost a, an after-dinner chat around the fireside, mm. doesn't it? I'm intrigued by the fact that Kenneth Williams worked for Orson Wells. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And was it Moby Dick? Were they both? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, on stage. Yeah, I, I just find that connection just so unlikely. It's almost, it's almost like um, I don't know, Marius Goring doing Doctor Who. <laughs> it just doesn't <laughs> quite compute, you know. Or, or, or are they in touch with? Well, they know what they're looking for. Orson Welles mm. knows what he's looking for, mm. and if he looks. I think you can tell there's a desperate mm. character actor wishing to escape from those binds of mm. comedy because mm. comedy can be, you know, that, that, that millstone around the neck when you mm. want to go off and do something particularly mm. serious. I mean, we, you know, we've seen that mm. now. I mean, well, like, the other thing is that, I mean, you know, Kenneth Williams stood in for Wogan, didn't he, later on? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. As did Selena Scott, but 
yeah, there we go. But um, and Joanna Lumley, of course. But, Joanna uh, Lumley, but, yeah. but Kenneth Williams was one of the stand-ins for Wogan, and yet I I find Wogan. I mean, yeah, affable, and again, another TV icon who who is, we no longer have in the world. But I think it's interesting that the Wogan show effectively takes the Parkinson format because very few of the other shows quite use the same template, did they? It's similar, but the Parkinson format. It doesn't seem to have worked with other presenters no. as well. I mean, Parkinson format is very simple, very, mm. very simple interview. Why, why overegg the pudding when mm. you've got an interviewer? Mm. Yeah. I mean, we—it's nothing like face to face from mm. the fifties and no. um, the the early sixties. Mm. It's nothing like that. But the format's still the same. It's mm. one particular individual talking mm. to another individual. Mm. It's just that I think the fact that when you bring an audience in. Mm. It then becomes a little more daunting for the interviewee mm. because they feel this necessity They're on. They have to be on. Yeah, and yeah. they have to mm. be top of the game. They have to mm. to extrude this per- false personality sometimes. Mm. But I think because and, and you found this with guests that came on repetitively because mm. Michael Parkinson was very good at investing into guests. He would want to come on again. Mm. Muhammad Ali being the classic. Because you saw so many levels mm. of that different person as they matured mm. and as he invited them back on again. Mm. And same with Kenneth Williams, mm. because you, you, you started off with that over-the-top mm. performance that he would give. Mm. And then you would find, perhaps the next time he comes on, that little bit of personal information mm. that he was willing to give out. Mm. And you found that with a lot of people. Billy Connolly was exactly the same, wasn't Well, it? Billy Connolly, I mean, in... A lot of ways probably owes a lot of his career to those Parkinson appearances because whilst he was a a well-known Scottish figure and, you know, was was well-known in the way that comedy can be in that kind of underground way, he broke through to the mainstream in those Parkinson interviews. I think it's also interesting when you compare and contrast, you know, the American talk show that seems to have The Stooge. Yes. You know, the regular who is there to play off the host if everything gets a bit dull. But also that thing where Parkinson would bring on one guest and then they'd stay on while the second guest came on and they'd stay on while the third guest came on. Yeah. That, again, it's kind of ingenious, but it also means that your first guest can actually just be awful <laughs> or can be brilliant. And either way, they're, they're warming up the other two acts, as it were. Yeah. I've never been fond of the musical interlude. I always find no. the musical interlude in in any of these kind of light entertainment things always it it feels like everybody's taking a break and it loses the um the momentum. momentum. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one thing Parky did use very well was he used uh, as an interviewer he stood out for me because he used silence very well. Mm. Silence is an uncomfortable thing especially if you're a performer because you feel that you have to fill that silence. And so if you are particularly nervous when you go onto the show and he'll ask you a couple of icebreaker questions and there's long silences, you then become aware of, if you're the interviewer, you become aware of that silence and you feel the necessity to suddenly fill that and you then lose control of saying to yourself, I have a handle on this. And then you become, strangely enough, euphorically relaxed because you're thinking, well... 
hey, it's actually, this program goes out at goodness knows what time at night. <laughs> and a lot of his American guests thought this, I think. Um, I don't think many people watch it, but it, I don't think they were aware of the vastness of uh, what went with Parkinson. Yes. <laughs> Use <laughs> the silence, sir. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. And, and again, there, there has always been this kind of thing. Well, you know, coming to Britain, it can feel a bit parochial, a bit, you know, like say that thing that Wales is a town somewhere on the outskirts of London kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. there is this sort of attitude that maybe many people see. It's, it's a bit like, uh, you know, when you see famous Hollywood actors advertising coffee. <laughs> you think, do they just hope that no one's going to see this in their own country? You know. Yeah. And and the mouse come here and they think oh you and their, and their agent goes oh well the BBC wants you they want you on the mm. Parkinson show mm. uh, and you think it and they're probably thinking oh, I've never met Michael Parkinson mm. they're only, and my park is just basically briefly going to go and meet them in the green room and go hello mm. I'm Michael Parkinson mm. thank you for coming on the show mm. welcome to the show don't worry about anything have a drink mm. relax and we'll go out and we'll have a chat but they're suddenly thinking. I'm coming to London to re- they come up from broader. I've come, mm. I've come over here. Oh, we're in London, mm. but you don't sound like a Londoner, mm. <laughs> which must be very but, weird. Yeah, as but well. you've got that thing because I mean, you know, there was the Eamon Andrews show in the sixties, wasn't there? I mean, you know, the yeah. Eamon Andrews show was that big London glitzy. That was the show to be seen on. Yeah, but he took himself far too seriously, though, Eamon mm. Andrews. I, I, I found him as a person who took himself. Far too seriously, but it's a different decade, that isn't it? That's you know, it, it, there was a different attitude to celebrity in the sixties than there was in. Oh, the it 70s. was very, very starched. Mm. It was very starched and almost formulaic. Mm. But even then, what I'm saying is, the person whose show to be seen on was. Oh yeah. Yeah, Eamon Andrews. And then in the 70s, it was very much the show you did. And, I mean, you hesitate to be able to assume that this is how things work. But over in Hollywood, you know, I imagine there is gossip and that was the name that would have come up. Maybe the BBC first, you know, oh, I went on the BBC and I talked to this guy, you know, I couldn't understand a word he said, that kind of thing, you know. But it was... <laughs> You kind of feel that if you were flying in in those days on, I don't know, we're a bit later than the comet, so, you know, <laughs> you know, if you were flying in on Concorde or you were flying in on uh, Jumbo Jet, you yeah. know, you would, your agent would have told you the show to be on is the Parkinson show. Yeah, and it's that, like if you go over there, it's the Ed Sullivan show, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's the it, but it would have been yeah. the profile. Yeah, but again, we sometimes forget that in our this era of Britain's global reach is that whilst Britain has always had a very highly inflated opinion of itself, you know, the American talk show hosts were coast to coast and they were huge, even at a time when the Parkinson show, if that had been shown in America, it would have been a minority yeah. channel. It wouldn't have had the same kind of impact. You know, Johnny Carson was enormous. You know, it just... It doesn't bear thinking about quite how huge those American talk shows were in comparison to even our shows. So the fact that they would fly in and go on that show still seems I don't say I'm not gonna say they're slumming it, but you know what I mean. It yeah. feels like it feels like a, a little gig, but an important little gig. What would your standout moment be? that really stands out in your mind of a, a classic Parkinson for you? Then? Uh, for me, I will never forget. Spike Milligan talking about taking his trousers off on the train <laughs> and, and holding them out the window. I that absolutely creased me up in my 
bedroom with my little black and white portable when I was <laughs> that, that to me was just the funniest thing I'd seen and it was a talk show and I was absolutely gobsmacked by that I know Blown talk shows aren't supposed to be like that are they <laughs> no no for me it has to be Peter Cook mm. another giant of mm. oh, he loved interview shows Peter mm. Cook because Peter Cook could just go on there he doesn't give a wet slap about anything mm. And he would perform. He would mm. be Peter Cook. He would mm. he would say the most ridiculous things mm. or be the most ridiculous character. Or mm. he would turn... He was very good at turning the interview around onto the interviewer. Mm. Oh, you see, the, the thing that troubles me is that Parkinson... It's become, like I say, the instant classic. It comes from an era when we didn't... I mean, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have mm. the same kind of access to you know like twitter that you get or whatever it calls itself today you know where you would get the actual almost banter you know or or conventions where you just get to go and chat to people in bars and and or you know green rooms people were iconic and inaccessible back then so this was how this was possibly the only peep behind the curtain we got you know apart from maybe the you know the the gossip pages of the tabloids you didn't really see the people apart from in these islands of television and you would have the most diverse people on the program i'm thinking of um so one moment you'll have bob hope or mm. being crosby and the following mm. week you had the entire show for jacob bronowski mm which is an absolutely formidable interviewing. Mesmerising. It, it is. Yeah. You can have people on that. I mean, it's so sad because we lost him in 73 anyway, shortly mm. after he did Parky. Mm. But he is just such an interesting, interesting, fascinating person. Mm. And again, he was, all right, he was plugging his show because his show, A Scent of Man, was on to mm. that was That's just, if you've never seen A Scent of Man, mm. what the hell are you doing? Mm. Go out and get it. Mm. Uh, but I know you're a fan of your documentaries, John. I do like a good documentary, but mm. but then again, you've then you've got the absurdity of the Richard Burton interview, mm. where they had to interview him early in the morning. Mm. So uh, about nine o'clock, wasn't it? Eight or nine o'clock in the morning. Parking into while I'm hungover, but before I've drunk anything. Yes, before yes. he's drunk anything to mm. make sure he's sober. And mm. the only people available were the mm. cleaners and the catering staff for TV mm. Centre. And uh, <laughs> the comment that Richard Burton made after he did the recording, he, he's allegedly uh, this is what Michael said. He, mm. he, he leaned across to Parky and said, "He said, um, I know you brought me in here earlier because I have a tendency to have a couple of uh, snifters mm. before lunch that puts mm. me flat out and incapable of doing anything. Mm. But he says, I went to a drying out clinic a while back and I had terrible delusions mm. of everything going around in my head. But mm. looking at this audience, it's freaking me out the most. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at chefs and cleaners mm. and I'm thinking, is this what my career has come to mm. <laughs> but uh, yeah but parkinson was never live was it or was no. it i mean no, so it was no, always no, it recorded live. the day before or the night before or i think i i think it was well the wednesday one i reckon it would have been on tuesday and edited for yeah. wednesday but we never Friday. had the the flouncy walkout that we sometimes got 
on later more controversial shows did we we never got that but, but when people were actually being interviewed live on television we never got the proper flounce off a of parky did we we got one or no. two where you didn't get many answers and people were quite surly but basically they had the opportunity to just completely cut it if they wanted to yeah and there's always a richness because you had john lennon yoko ono in the, mm. the famous one that the bbc got rid of but somebody actually made a recording of mm. and he blatantly asks them you know yoko ono did you did you break the beatles up did you go mm. for the idea of breaking the beatles mm. up was that a conscious and she said no i never did that and i, I even i mean you know you've you've got john lennon going no it, it run its course and People should never say that. He said, if I want to go off and do something else, I'll go in off and do something else. So, What do you think I, is the legacy of Parkinson then? Were there areas that he did in his interviews that perhaps he shouldn't have gone into? Do you think that his the programmes he made have sort of set a template for for later interviewers or...? I think, yeah, I think the template he created quite easily because it's quite mm. simple. And I mean... The reason behind that is because the BBC were looking at, you know, the Johnny Carson Tonight Show over in mm. the States. Um, I think um, Mr Cotton, Billy Cotton, was looking at that. But he also had his production team behind him were from Late Night Lineup. So mm. they were also aware of the... Because the, they had um, interviews on Late Night Lineup. So mm. I think they've taken that concept and just extended it a bit more into a wider reach, that mm. had more of an appeal... I think the format was always there. It mm. was just homing it to have the right appeal, to get the mm. right audience, to set up that right reputation, to bring in those stars. But do you think it changed the way the public engaged with the stars or the famous people, the celebrities, if you like? Do you, know, do you feel that having had that you know, 10 years or whatever it was of the original Parkinson show, do you think people started to view celebrity in a different way because of what they saw on the Parkinson show? I think they could spot a false one straight mm. away. I think they got very, the audience got very honed into going, yeah, this is all false, mm. you're just doing this for the camera. Mm. Whereas, uh, and you will find that with a lot of stars, don't mm. they? They don't like revealing their personality no. because perhaps they... They haven't got they have, one. <laughs> <laughs> they got oh yeah perhaps they yeah. haven't got one or they feel that they're the real them is not entertaining mm. or in, none of anybody's goddamn business. Well, this is it. I mean, if we didn't script every single word of these shows, Warren, we, we wouldn't have anything to say, would we? No, That's the interesting no. Thing. <laughs> it, it says here, um, <laughs> but no, I, I think I think it did. I think, but I, I think it made people more aware of how human this person mm. sat on the silver screen or on their television screen was. Mm. And with human fallibilities. Yeah, but nowadays we we throw spiders at celebrities. We we dump gunk on them. You know, they're not Where? celebrities. Well, blimey, they're pseudo they're pseudo celebrities. People mm. who want to be taken into the hearts of the viewing public as being their celebrity. When you know, majority of the time, and this is no disrespect to them, they work in a different genre of mm. celebrity. There's such mm. a pecking order now of celebrity mm. that it's so embarrassing. You you just don't know on which level people lie anymore. But when you have people who are their name is known within public circles, be it them a personality of some mm. kind, or be them a politician or a chef mm. or 
Joe Public, who's mm. a reality star. God knows I hate reality stars. But mm. but do you think that changed over the course of Parkinson, or do you think Parkinson changed how we engage with the television and the people on it, do you think? This is the thing I can't quite get my head around, is, is whether the Parkinson shows of the early 70s are that different to the Parkinson shows of the late 70s, or oh, was God, it just no. the collider of the desk? Sense, the early 70s, I think, were more richer. Mm. A more richer vein. Of is that because tapping in? There was that generation of movie stars, and you know, for them to come down from the heavens to talk to the likes of us just hadn't happened previously. I think, think a lot. Yeah, I think that generation of movie stars that mm. came back wanted to be. You know, they're, they're not getting any younger, and mm. they wanted to still be remembered. Mm. And I think. Like all all film person or television personalities who are mm. from the past, they wanted to be remembered and have a right. legacy of some kind. Mm. And I think when you're a big star mm. and you haven't made a movie for about ten or fifteen years, but you mm. were a big name mm. over the last you know quarter century. Yes. To suddenly step back into the limelight, mm. it's like getting that shot in the arm again mm. of of adrenaline, and, mm. and you come back to being yourself. Mm. Uh, just for that moment, just mm. for that 20 minutes, mm. you feel as though you're courting an audience again that wants mm. to watch you. And I think that was another thing that was very prevalent during the early 70s. I mean, towards the end, it did turn into a case of Parky's best mates are coming around again tonight. Yes. Mm. And you, we did fall into the, the trap of, yeah, let's have, let's have Kenneth Williams on again or let's have Peter Euston off on again. Mm. We never learned anything new, but by that time, it had also become a platform for them to remind the audience that they were still about and they were performers and they could entertain, they could make us laugh, they could make us cry. Mm. Um, and again, the age of the raconteur was beginning to fade out there because people had heard these stories a lot before because mm. they'd been on Parky, they'd been on, invited into other shows. I mean, mm. Spike Milligan was always good at telling the same stories towards mm. the end of his career. Mm. But I think, yeah, the important bit is that bit from 71 onwards, mm. to probably towards about 70. Well, I think, again, I mean, when you think about, I, I don't know if you're you were a fan of, you know, the Talking Pictures show that used to be on um, Saturday afternoons with Sylvia yeah. Sylvia Sims did the narration. Sylvia Sims, yeah. And they were basically this was again it was a compilation, if you like, of interviews with these stars of the silver screen, but they were mostly or quite often centered around their Parkinson interview because, in many ways, it was the only time you ever really saw that certainly in their later careers you know they might do two or three parkinson shows and splicing those together can pretty much tell you somebody's life story i'm always reminded of david niven yes and david niven yeah. changing in many ways the celebrity biography or the autobiography <laughs> into something much more racy than it had previously been yeah. Uh, and he kind of like breaking them all. Uh, Niven did do the Parkinson show, didn't he? He did. He told the terrible prawn joke on the Parkinson <laughs> show. <laughs> he says, I only know one joke. It's called the prawn joke and it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and he got that nervous laughter, but it was mm. David Niven that told it. So it was fine. Mm. Mm. But yeah, his, 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 wasn't his autobiography The Moon's a Balloon? Moon's a Balloon, that's right. Yeah. And Bring on the Empty Horses. Was that's the, it. Uh, the yeah, that's the but, one um, I couldn't remember, yeah. 
but yeah but they are i mean again two sort of classics of 70s well certainly of 70s publishing really but uh, of celebrity autobiography they are, they are quite the thing but they again they let us behind behind the curtain behind the, you know when the curtains open on on the the cinema screen it really was a different relationship with the cinema certainly in the 50s and the 40s and the 30s and i suppose that did start to break down a bit in the 60s and again characters that you know not characters, but but people like Parkinson, presenters like Parkinson, interviewers like Parkinson, did yeah. start to. I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? You kind of wonder whether it, the stranglehold cinema had had already broken because of television, really, don't you? You know, maybe we did start to sort of chip at the veneer a bit. Yeah, I mean, the stranglehold of films, and then I think um, the late sixties, early seventies had gone. It, 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 mm. um, it had gone. Um, we had so much diversity now coming out mm. of ITV, BBC mm. in, in their dramas or, or to the in their TV movies as mm. well. But there was a new generation of movie stars, wasn't there? And, oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. And whilst they would appear on shows like that, that it was a very different, very less reverential approach that interviewers took with them. If you see what I mean, like Jack Nicholson turning up on a thing would be different to Lauren Bacall turning up on a thing. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, Lauren Bacall would be happy to just talk about her life. I mean, mm. it's the same with people like Fred Astaire or mm. or uh, John Wayne. Even mm. I mean, they're not there to. They've done their time, mm. and they. I think they were well aware they've done their time, but they mm. just wanted to say, "Hi, I'm still here." Mm. Ask me a question, and um, I'm at the age now. I will give you a truthful answer, or I won't uh, avoid the I avoid the question. I mean, James, as you mentioned earlier, James mm. Cagney is a, mm. a classic example of that. On Parky, also is Robert Mitchum. They never mm. came. They were not there to promote anything. They had no. nothing to promote. They no. just wanted to chat. Mm. And they, as you say, the word had gone over the pond. This is a nice guy to speak to. He's fine to speak to. Mm. Go have a chat with him. They go. I thought Mitchum was the one with, with the yup, yup, nope, nope. Um, Have you ever I hit think... somebody in a bar? I thought that was the anecdote for Mitchum. <laughs> yeah. I think he was out of the... questions. So, Warren, have you ever hit anyone in a bar? <laughs> yeah, oh, you get interviews like that. Um, mm. It's because, but usually, the, not the interviewee doesn't want to be there, but they're mm. so bloody nervous mm. that they don't realise that they're answering this so quickly mm. or just going, yeah, no. Yeah, because they're just terrified. And that's an interesting way to look at a star on a programme as well. I mean, any interview sh show, isn't it? When when you find that, that they're, they're just answering with yes, no, as if it's an interrogation. And an interview, you know, a light entertainment show for an interview is, is not supposed to be an interrogation. And it should never descend into the level where you have to keep repeating a question. But do you think there were regrets? I mean, I, I've got to be honest. I mean, I do this. And every single time I record with anybody, I go away afterwards and think, God, I wish I hadn't said that, or I wish I hadn't. And then when I come to weave my magic later on, <laughs> I usually think, oh, it's actually fine. I wasn't as big an idiot as I like to think I am. But do you think there were people who went on the Parkinson show and sort of, you know, went away going, oh, oh why did I tell people about my horrible upbringing in downtown New York or whatever? Do you think, you know, do you think we actually did see stuff that actually if they hadn't been nervous we probably would never have found out um i think yeah that comes back to the answering questions like a machine gun i want to get this over and done with and then well, that's that a journalist comes... isn't it? i mean 
Parkinson was first and foremost a journalist. Yeah, and, and I think it's a defensive nature of the interviewee mm. to sometimes put up that flimsy facade because mm. there is that there is that sort of give it your best shot with a question. Mm. By the way, I've put up this flimsy mm. facade. If it's a good enough question, mm. I'll let it down a bit and I'll let out a few answers. There is that game. There is that toing and throwing of verbal tennis between the um, the interviewer and the interviewee, and mm. and you can see the more. And this comes back to the season's film stars as well. Mm. You can see they can play with the format, but mm. they know not to step outside of the format, mm. but they know how to play around it. Well, there was a lot of training, wasn't there? The studios had a lot of control over what was said back in oh, the 40s. Oh, so, absolutely, so they were, yeah. They were, we'd call it now media trained, but, I mean, they knew what they were doing quite often. They knew what they had to project. Even at that late stage in their career, they knew they had to be, first and foremost, a movie star. Yes, and they were an ambassador, not only for their own craft mm. and themselves, but for the movie studio that employed them. Mm. Uh, and I think when, you go, when, when that's removed mm. and you, 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 know, you land back on what, the ground what, when things get later. candid you mean or yeah i mean and, and there were candid when people moments. try and try and expose something i mean there's a seedy cynical approach to a lot of interviewing now which is actually oh, trying to get people off guard isn't they're it? looking for that vox pops but they're, mm. they're looking for that little thing they can stick in the trailer mm. i mean it's it's like the what's that chap's name used to be on channel four speaks rather rapidly used to be a barrister oh um yes uh, clive anderson uh, the Bee Gees interview, yeah. that famous Bee Gees interview. Mm. That's when you lose control of the interview because the interviewer mm. is so full of themselves and not mm. not there for the person they're interviewing. Mm. I think that's when it collapses. I think mm. that's that's a that's a classical mistake that they made where he asked an impertinent question and he knew it was going to be impertinent mm. and he's a barrister he knows how to frame these things mm. and his machine gun interviewing skill is not only wearing your interviewees down mm. where you're hoping they will slip up and make a mistake because that's mm. what he does because mm. that comes from his barrister mm. training but that's what he took nowadays that's that's the sound bite that would be the tweet yeah. that would be the yeah. thing that gets the likes and the retweets, yeah. I mean, I remember the trailer for that, the, mm. the trailer for that, mm. um, the Channel 4 watch, and they show the clip, and they even had it on the Channel 4 News mm. and getting up and walking out of the interview. Mm. And quite right, too, because the rules, you don't change the rules of an interview halfway through, no. and that's exactly what he did, and he was he was rude to his guests. The pull-out quote. But then again, I mean, that happens famously on news programmes, but that's mm. because... Perhaps the, the interviewer asks to searching a question that the politician suddenly goes, damn, I can't answer that. Anyway, I'm answered, I'm screwed, so I get up and leave. That's mm. completely different to being in a safe environment with an audience. Mm. And um, you're there to either promote yourselves, promote your group, or just gently have a chat. I can't remember anyone in Parkinson that I don't think anyone in Parkinson walked out. It wasn't that kind no. of show. I even think the, the thing that interests even the Muppet me though, stayed on. is yes. But we we now live in a, an era where the interview is actually part of the documentary. I mean, we get now the celebrity oh, yeah. documentary. I recently watched the Boris Becker documentary series. You know about the downfall yep. of Boris Becker. And what gets me is there's the pullout quote 
in the trailer where this this judge is so chuffed with this line that you may have been number one on the court, but you're in my court now. You may have been the greatest on your courts, but now you're walking into mine. And it's so smug, it's so annoying, it's such an annoying line. And if you've seen the trailer for that documentary series <laughs> and you've seen it six times, you want to punch the screen. And it's, <laughs> it's amazing how very quickly that tiny, tiny, I think I'm really clever soundbite can yeah. become okay it might get you the likes on facebook it might get you the likes on twitter or x but it it's so do we live in a time now where we're just basically irritated by everything i've spent a lot of the time this week watching curb your enthusiasm on uh yeah on now tv and i'd never seen it before i had it recommended i finally have access to it and i feel it changed my approach to the world but it's just do we all spend our lives in this state of anger and fury because... i don't think we do i think we have a short well the um, especially the younger group of people because you have mm. things like they, they they thrive on on TikTok, mm. but is that, uh, I was saying, is that what the television interview has started to become? It's looking yeah, for that the things 30, that will annoy that us. Thirty seconds mm. of boom, 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 boom. Answer, mm. answer, answer. Which one was controversial out of those answers? Mm. That's what it is. Because mm. by producing those things on social media, you're reducing. Mm the connectability with your audience you must keep it fast you must keep it mm. tightly cut interviews you can't do that because you lose the personal touch if mm. you start doing that with an interview you've lost it you've lost your audience you can't constantly cut 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 mm. soundbite soundbite old mm. cheeky comment bit of laughter revealing answer mm. But that nowadays, sort of if they were making, even do if they were doing trailers for the Parkinson show, they would cut out the little soundbite, wouldn't they? To make it mm. sound more exciting or more rude than it might actually have been in context. We've started to sort of trim and play around with audio in a way now that's designed to get a response, designed to get an action. And I actually think, well, to be frank, Parky had more class than that. Oh, yes. No, he wouldn't deal with any crap like that because mm. he wasn't part of that genre he he created yeah, he came through to television in the modern era do you think that's why in the end he thought i've had enough of this I'm yeah i think out. there's only yeah. yeah and i think there's only so much you can do i mean parky bless his heart also had his problems that, that mm. he, he carried with him because he had a mm. he had an alcohol problem as well mm. which was part of the imposter syndrome mm. and i think yeah, you know when, when you're carrying a lot of baggage on your shoulders and mm. being a personality you at some point you're going to say i have to step down now mm. i just need to step away because the beast is becoming all consuming mm. and also he's got a reputation he's got a reputation and you know at some point that that reputation will flag mm. and as, as people say you leave on the high mm. you don't wait till that reputation just nosedives yeah. they expected so much from parky yeah you don't wait uh, till you get slapped by grace jones you know yeah, exactly I get, I get, oh. yeah mm. <laughs> do you um because i know you're a, an old school film fan i know you like old movies and i know you like that era of filmmaking uh, uh, but you know in, around the world not just not mm. just american films but do you feel you went away from the awesome wells parkinson interview feeling you knew awesome wells better I felt I wanted to know more about him. You see, I, well, yeah, w one of my favourite Christmases was the one I, was, I spent all alone, it's all alone, <laughs> but I, I spent it all alone and they showed the three-part arena documentary on yeah. Orson Welles in the morning and 
it was most of the morning, most of the afternoon, and I basically sat there <laughs> cooking my Christmas dinner. Oh, all alone. <laughs> but, but, but watching this Hold magnificent... Hold on, Martin, can you hear that? Can you hear that? That's the smallest violin in the world. <laughs> oh, I just thought it was a gathering of all my friends. Um, <laughs> anyway, no, and I just remember specifically, I, I don't know, we're not talking about documentaries specifically yeah. today, but I just remember thinking what a wonderful piece of television that yeah. was. And I felt, having seen that, I wanted to know more about Orson mm. Welles. Do you think The Good Interviewer, as we wind up our hour here, do you think The Good Interviewer wants you to feel that you relate and belong or have in some way some understanding of the person who's being interviewed i think that helps a hell of a lot um, so nobody knows nothing about you then. <laughs> nobody knows nothing about me because i'm not the good interview no i know i know yeah, i know what you're saying <laughs> but but do you, i mean do you think that that is something that comes out across in those parkinson interviews do you, do you feel he on the whole apart from the odd aberration he does actually sort of respect the person oh i think there's totally there's total respect there however Mm. negative or or however much his questions Mm. might fall on the deaf ears Mm. of the interviewee Mm. or or being aware that the interviewee perhaps might have their own agenda for well they they were recorded a lot of those interviews recorded in changing times i mean yeah again you know the role of of women within the cinema it was changing at that time but also you know there were movements political movements sort of Mm. happening across that decade which meant that sometimes he might come across as a little bit old-fashioned and a little bit patronizing i think yeah i think he did come across as old um sexist and patronizing would you say Mm. well well that's that that's that i think that's a criticism that can be leveled yes yeah but anything could be if you look for it Mm. if you take it in the spirit that it's delivered the questions mm. delivered it I understand in the way it's delivered mm. the question is delivered that, that it's not there to be used as a tool to attack the interviewee no. i think it's contextual though isn't it i mean realistically in some ways and not a lot of ways but in some ways women who were movie stars had more power and control of their career their persona the way they were portrayed in the world than maybe you know doris the tea lady had or you know the office oh, girls absolutely, absolutely you know so so whilst there had been progress in certain areas of society across the board it was le- so actually you know people were still you know talking to their secretaries you know like there were commodities if you see what i mean unfortunately you know, the, the, yeah the, the people in television center at the time were probably or or you know wherever it's tens. tweed and piss and vinegar isn't it yeah, yeah. that's what it, it is it's yeah. still that era however however um past um, the equal equalities act mm. has come in it's still that for quite mm. a while after the act mm. came in Mm. It, it is fag smoke and tweed jackets but that's what i'm BBC. saying what we were seeing you know the reaction of people who were in the spotlight and had power within their chosen profession was different to the experience of the person sitting watching oh, the absolutely. television at home making absolutely. the beans on toast or you know still but, having to be the housewife if you like yeah but then again did did parky fall into what the rest of the country would call an architectural Yorkshireman at well, that time. There's, there's the Yorkshireman thing, but basically, you know, it's, it's that, again, unfortunately, it's that, you know, white men ran the industry back then. They, yeah. You know, they did every, and, and he was, in some ways, a representative of that culture. It's not 
meant uh, i'm not meaning that to denigrate him by any oh, no, means. no he was, no, he no, was just sure. he was the public face of how society was set up in those days yes yeah and it's it, his style was a reflection of the mm. time um, and but you could see that style mature and grow up mm. as the decade the mm. couple of decades he was doing mm. the chat show went along mm. even yeah. into the time when he did his small spin on ITV as well. So you think, you know, Parky, I mean, because again, it, within right, within the terms of, I mean, he's iconic in terms of what he did as a presenter, but also in terms of a television giant. We have had television I wouldn't giants. Call him, I wouldn't call him a television well, I'm, giant. I'm thinking of the TV as he, well. I don't think he would, I mean, when he, when he got his uh, knighthood, Mm. He got it for his parents, didn't mm. he? He got it for his father. He said, "This is mm. for the hard work my mm. father did down the pits, and this mm. is just to say to him, the boy did good." Mm. Well, he didn't I lose his roots, did he at all? He never lost his roots, and I think that's where it comes down to Parky. Mm. He he wanted to say to his parents, mm. "Okay." His father took him deliberately, took him down the pit, and mm. saw how bad it was, so he wouldn't go down the pit and wouldn't work down the pit. Mm. But what else was there to do? And he carved a niche for himself. Mm. And perhaps this would not have been your average Yorkshireman's desire to go into mm. journalism and then end up on the television as a household name. Mm. But I think for somebody that has stepped out of poverty, because it would have been poverty-ridden streets he was on, mm. and put his head above the parapet, ready to be shot off, worked mm. damn hard to go through... Uh, as you say, as a journalist, and he started off on regional television, and, and he was at um, Granada, wasn't he, for a while. Mm. And he worked damn hard and said, do you know what? I can do this. Mm. And I think the pinnacle was getting the gong. And he humbly says, it's not for me. It's for my parents mm. for believing that I could be something other than somebody who worked down the pit, mm. which proves that anybody can do that. And I think that's what he's trying to say. Well, I think we'll probably have to leave it there. Another television icon of our youth passed away. Yeah. And, you know, I, I genuinely, I mean, not, I mean, you can't really say missed because he wasn't on the television a lot now. No, but, but, but his think, legacy is there. Yeah. And, and I think when these people, when these lights go out, we, we do we, we do feel the need oh, to. Oh, absolutely. Mark, yeah. don't we? It's a little part of us that goes to sleep as well, really, isn't it? It's bit by bit, our memories are going, oh, okay that's become a bit more of a hallowed memory than it used to be. We've passed into history. Thank you very much for your time today, Warren. Always a joy. We're happy Thank you, my soon. friend. You take care. And you too. Take care. Bye-bye. In other words, if you were me, what would you do now? Well, just wrap it up. Many thanks to Warren Cummings for joining me here on Vision on Sound to talk about the life of Michael Parkinson, a television figure who played no small part in forming Warren's own interest in classic cinema, which he talks about in his own regular Cinematic Sausage podcast. So anyway, that's another Vision on Sound in the can for this week. Before I go, I just need to thank everyone at Fab Radio International for everything they do to keep you all listening. And finally, of course, my thanks go out to each and every one of you for tuning in. As ever, I have been Martin, and this has been Vision on Sound. Goodbye for now, and take care.